It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the cappuccino with Constable Brian. Okay, so my guest today on the cappuccino is Bernard Bernie McCowell, uh, all black number 884, uh, Marist all black number 20, a second 5'8", centre three-quarter. He was an all black from 1987 to 1991. He played 10 tests, 22 tour matches, 16 points and four tries. He played for the Auckland team from 1984 to 1993, 91 games, 113 points. He was part of the Auckland MPC champion team, 85, 87, 88, 89, 90, 93. He was a New Zealand Colt in 84, 85. He was a member of the New Zealand 15 team in 1991. He was the New Zealand B team in 1991 also. He's played in two Rugby World Cups. He was part of the original 87 winning World Cup team and also the 91 semi-finalists. Uh, he's had five overseas tours, four, four tries in the black jersey. His New Zealand stats are 151 first-class games, 185 points. He's also, and not many New Zealanders know this unless you're uh, wearing the shade green, a GAA Barbarian, so I reckon he's a dual international because he's played God's, he's played God's game Gaelic football. Uh, welcome to the Cappuccino, Bernie. Hey, Ryan, how you going, buddy? Good, good, mate. Hey, uh, first things first, if we were going to have a coffee, what would be your choice? Oh, flat white. There you go. A so large flat white on that. If you happen to see Bernie out in, in the public and you see him and you think, oh, I want to do something for him, buy him a flat white. Okay, hey, speed round, uh, dedicated to the world's best police movie. Uh, starring Keanu Reeves. So, pop quiz, hot shot. Here we go. The best rugby player I ever played rugby with or against was who, Bernie? Zambrook. There you go. Uh, the last book you read? You mean that I finished reading or I'm still reading? I'm reading well, one at the moment called Breath. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what it is. I, I read it as well. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, fantastic book. Yep. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. If I had known some of the stuff in that book when I was playing sports, I might have actually been able to make the extra five yards. Who knows? Uh, if you could do your career over again. What do you again, mean? You're a superstar. I settle down. If you could do your career over again, but in a different code to rugby, but with the same accolades, what sport would you choose? Um, Gaelic football or Aussie rules, I reckon. There you go. That's all good. Yep. Okay. Uh, the best sports movie of all time is what? Best sports movie. Wow. Um, Invictus was interesting for me because it was the um, coming out of apartheid with South Africa. So just from a personal point of view, I, I quite enjoyed that movie. Obviously, there's been some great ones about um, NFL and baseball, but they don't interest me to the same extent. Yeah. Uh, what superstitions did you have when you played? Always put on my right sock before my left sock and always put on my right boot before my left boot. There you go, good man. Uh, what drives Bernie McCahill absolutely bananas? <laughs> oh, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. Right. Now, Sporting Prowess runs through the McCahill family because all of your brothers and sisters have either been senior or provincial rips in their fields. I'm going to put the acid on you now, Bernie. Which side of the family does it come from? Well, this, I've thought about that before, Brian, and this is my answer. Yep. Mum 
mum was quite an athlete. Uh, she was a very good Irish dancer and she was good at netball and, and uh, basketball and stuff like that. So she had a natural talent for sport. But dad was a grafter. He was just a hard worker. All he knew was, uh, you know, pick up a spade and dig a foot and just keep going. Yeah. So, you know, when I do try and analyse it, there's there's the nuts and bolts of, of the um, work ethic along with the uh, the skill factor. So I, I wouldn't put it down to one side or the other. Bless. Right on the fence. God bless you. Okay. So you get named an All Black in 1987, and that's an incredibly big pressure year because it's the Rugby World Cup that year. It's the very first time the Rugby World Cup is played. Can you remember what it was like to get the phone call and who was the first person you told after you got in the phone call? Well, we didn't get a phone call. Um, we played the final All Black trial up in Wangarei, yeah. uh, Possibles, Probables. And then there was a big dinner with TV cameras and everything at it. And they actually named the team live on TV. Jeez. <clears throat> uh, and it was kind of difficult because you could have been sitting at a table with someone who made it and two people who didn't. And I... Font, well, no, I, I vividly remember that Buck Anderson was at a table. He got player of the day that day and he missed out on the team. Mm. So there was all sorts of emotions in the room. There was people like myself and Zinni and Michael Jones who just got named for the first time and were ecstatic. And then there's people who uh, were all blacks before that that missed out who were pretty pretty dejected. So it was a strange setup, really. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we had the dinner and, and that was named and we had a you know, few photo sessions and all that. But we didn't take long to go around to a hotel where mum and dad and Mr. and Mrs. Brooke were and a few other parents. So we got around to see them pretty quick and, uh, and had a quick drink with them as well. Nice. Now, the 87 Rugby World Cup was the big unknown for everybody because, look, let's be yeah. honest, it's the first time it had ever happened. Um, and it was fair to say the New Zealand public, as they always do, expect the All Blacks to turn up every time and win. How did you guys cope with that pressure on the ground? Because that's huge pressure to go into a tournament which you've never seen the likes of before. You've got really no idea about how it's going to play out or if injuries are going to happen. So how did you cope with it all? Yeah, it was really interesting. In the, and uh, you think back to the management at the time who, who did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, the first game was against Italy and we'd never played Italy. No one knew who they were except JK uh, and probably Zinni might have been up there and had a couple of seasons. So they knew of some of the players, but it was such an unknown. You didn't know, you know, what they were going to bring to the table. Were they a bit like the French and they're going to explode or were they going to be average? And, and um, so all we could really do is concentrate on ourselves and do the best um, that we could at the time. Um you know, Hardy and Grizz and, and Brian Law, Brian Law was just a super man management uh, guy. When they got together and they decided we needed a couple of little breaks and we went to Puranoa, which is um, the southernmost point of the North Island, just down from Wairarapa. And uh, we stayed on farms for a night and there was another occasion when we had a night in the Hawke's Bay. And all of that stuff was strategically placed just to get us away from you know, the mainstream media and, and the hype of the place and just concentrate on on ourselves and what we we're trying to achieve. So they did a pretty good job in that regard. And, of course, you know, uh, I think Fiji was a second game, Italy first, Fiji second. Momentum just started to build, and then it was Argentina. And by that time, 
we're on top of the ground running and other teams hadn't seen the pace that we were playing at and couldn't, couldn't actually keep with us. Uh, quarter-final time against Scotland, they thought they were going to dominate us in the forwards. They, um, they had a good scrum. Well, Grizz got our guys doing 50 scrums of practice and, and we dominated their scrum. So the game was over at the kickoff. Yeah. Um, and then off to Wales, uh, Wales was the semi-final across in Brisbane. So that was getting out of the, you know, uh, New Zealand for a bit, which was probably a good thing in hindsight. Um, yeah. and uh, the, the World Expo was on so we were distracted a little bit by other things but when it came to game time we knew how to switch on and, and get on with, the, on with the business Yeah, now you debuted against Argentina in that tournament number one is what's it like to run on that pitch as an all black for your first game and the second is did any of the old heads in the team give you any advice that sort of sticks with you? If you if you imagined what it would be like putting on the black jersey for the first time and running out in front of a stadium of, you know, 40,000 people, yep. that's what it's like. Yep. You know, it's exactly what you think it is. You're, you're pumped up, you're proud as punch, uh, you've got the jersey on and you just want the whistle to go. You just want to get into the game as as quick as you can. So, um, uh, you know, they're wonderful memories and, and, and stuff. And talking about the players well every single player whether they were playing or a reserve or a dirty dirty they make sure they come up to you and shake your hand before the kickoff you know whether it's an hour before or 10 minutes before and they just whisper a word like mate have a good one just do what you do and we'll be there with you and whatever just enough to give you uh i guess the confidence to know that they've got your back and you've got theirs and, and you just get out and do your job yeah all right so having been a part of the all blacks what is it that you think makes them such a formidable force to be reckoned with? Because we've got listeners in Canada and America and everything else, and they'll be talking about sports teams. And I always say to them, look, apart from the Black Ferns and the All Blacks, nobody stands anywhere near us because our winning percentage is so high. What If you were going to put your finger on it, what would you say it was? Well, I think it's in our DNA, really. Like, you know, we're brought up with the game for a start, and it whether it's... New Zealand, the country, and how you've got this can-do attitude and you just have to make do and you you work things out when you're a young fella. All of that stuff helps us in the game. Uh, we play in all sorts of conditions. Like We're not like South Africans and Australians that, that play the game on top because their fields are so much better. Um, we play in the rain. We play in the mud. We play in the wind. We play on top of the ground. Um, but most of all, you know, I think it's just, it's just become such a part of our culture. I read Dave Geller's book, and he he was one that said it's in our DNA, actually. Um, and when you think back, he's probably right. Uh, you know, uh, our psyche's made for it. And, of course, the legacy helps that. The, the, the guys of today are so much driven by not wanting to let the juicy down and actually leave it in a better place than what they uh, came into it at, which is part of the drive as well yeah now after that rugby world cup tournament ended was there a feeling of relief or was it more sort of euphoria that you'd actually managed to pull it off and get it done because there was a hell of a amount of pressure on you you know the pressure wasn't felt so much within the camp like um pressure pressure is something that that all blacks are used to you know uh, we're used to playing at club level under pressure because you've got to perform. You're used to playing at Auckland level because you've got to perform. So, you know, we didn't really feel that external pressure. What we felt was there was a huge following, a lot of support. 
so that was that was really really wonderful and that helped drive us as well so um uh, yeah i you know, I, I would say that that the other, the other telling things the um the end of it was euphoria it wasn't about relief you know we just uh were on a mission to play well and win and and it happened and we had a big night after it like hmm. um when i think about it <laughs> yeah uh but we're all up on monday morning and off to work again so it wasn't like you you dwelled on it for for three weeks or six months or something you know it was just back to your daily grind again yeah now looking back on it do you realize I'm guessing now you realise what a momentous occasion it was to be the first Rugby World Cup champions ever. But at the time, did you guys have any inkling about what you'd done? Because there's only, literally, there is only sort of a handful of people now who can ever say, yeah, we were the first Rugby World Cup champions, didn't they? Yeah, like, um, yeah, you do look back on that with pride. You never thought it would take as long. Like, we went off the 91 thinking we could uh, back it up. It took 24 years before we won it again. Mm. And, um, you know, every year that went by, we, you know, we we had a bit of a, a get-together in 2011 before the, I guess it was before the final, and all the guys were talking there about, let's hope these guys win, because you don't want it to go for another four years. You actually wanted the monkey off the back, if that's the right way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, Obviously, you can never take away that we were the first. That's um, that's something pretty special. Um, and and I think as as we go forward, we'll end up becoming the team that wins it the most time. Although, you know, that's going to get tougher and tougher. But mm. uh, first to, to first to get to three, and now there's two teams at three, so it's just going to be a battle going yep. forward. But I think we'll always be up there somewhere, knocking on the door. Not wrong. Um, do you think now that there's too much emphasis placed on the Rugby World Cup? Because the, the, there's lots of talk now that like we're getting like English soccer fans, you know, we're, the only thing that we're really worried about is the Rugby World Cup, when in actual fact we should be worried about things like the Bledisloe Cup and, you know, some of the other tours to Wales and Ireland and Scotland and the such like. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you can see how it's changed, you know, uh, grassroots rugby. They call grassroots rugby now the, uh, the second and third division provincial stuff. Yeah. Club rugby's gone. Yeah, and, um, you know, we've got real issues at, at Auckland Marist about how we try and resurrect the place and keep it alive. And we're not the only club. And I'm not talking just rugby. It's it's all sorts of sports. Mm. It's tough, tough yakka. Yeah. So it's almost like um, because there's so much emphasis up the top now that the professional game is completely taken over and the amateur game will just fall apart and become a social place, I think. You know, a social game where you don't even have a referee. You just turn up with 10 mates and run around for half an hour and then go and have a beer probably, um, yeah. which is a bit sad. But, yeah, unfortunately, the rest of the world probably focus on the World Cup more than the All Blacks. The All Blacks still want to win every game, and that's mm. part of part of our psych and part of what we're expected to do. Um, so as you hear the All Blacks talk about Bledisloe Cups and all those things, um, they're hugely important to, to the teams. Um, and unfortunately, we always create a bar that's hard to, for other teams to reach. But by the time the World Cup comes around, they've caught up. Mm. And then we're in a place of trying to, uh, you know, reinvent or or beat these teams that are catching up because they're peaking for that four yearly. Well, we're peaking every year. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, I've asked a couple of Black Ferns this question. I'm going to ask you as well. Where's your Rugby World Cup medal these days? Uh, Hanging up. There you go. Oh, yeah, I can see it. Yep, perfect. Yep. 
that's yep. that's the winners one there. Yeah, and those two are. That's a participation medal from 91, and I think that must be the bronze medal from 91. And, yep. and that's my cap sitting up there. So they're right in, in, the, in the dining room, really. Yeah, because I, I do know some people who've got theirs in undie drawers, but we'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> what's it like watching the All Blacks as an ex-All Black? If I said to your wife, what's Bernie like when he watches the All Blacks, what would she say? What would she say? Um but yeah, that's, yeah. that's a very interesting question. I'm not quite sure how to answer it, but I I tend to stand up for the national anthem most of the time still. Yeah. And uh, I obviously watch the game critically. I like to see us do well. And, um, you know, I don't analyse the game as much as I used to, but I certainly like to look at the players who are coming through and, and uh, make sure that, you know, Critiquing them, really, making sure they're doing a good job. So, um, you know, I don't get frustrated if we lose as long as we've played well. I get yeah. frustrated if we make a heap of mistakes and it doesn't work. So um, I'm just an avid supporter now, really. Nice. Yeah, that's all right. I just wondered if you oh, – like I walk in circles sometimes and I'll have to leave the room, come back in and that type of stuff. So just wondered if you did that. Now, you were part oh, of – I don't get that emotionally involved. Oh, mate. Uh, now, you were part of the best – and I'm going to say this, it'll upset people in Canterbury, but they can get over it. Uh, you were part of the best provincial rugby team we've ever seen in the Auckland rugby team in the 1980s and 1990s. When you look back at that time, what's the first thing that springs to your mind? Because that was an epic run. Probably the professionalism, you know, you know, it's a, it's a funny word because we're amateur and we didn't get paid, but our guys were so professional in their approach. They, um, their attention to detail, their fitness levels, you know, we would have been the fittest team around them. I'm convinced of that. Mm -hmm. And we played the game that probably proved that we were, um, uh, but the preparation going into games, the way we, uh, got on with each other, uh, the, the culture that was created around the place was a winning culture. There was a lot of things that made that era special and probably no different to the 91 World Cup. We're uh, um, probably, uh, we were guilty of undoing it as well because we almost got a bit too complacent about it. And we used to train short and sharp and that almost became an excuse for not getting as fit as we used to be. So the, the decline was slow, but it came. But by Jingo's during during the time, and you'll probably remember when the team uh, the supporters used to leave one end of the field to go to the other at halftime, they were just magic moments. Yeah. You know, it, it almost felt like every time we had the ball, there was there was a try on, and that's clearly impossible. But it felt like we had the ability to break them up at any stage. Yeah, yeah, not wrong. Now speaking of the '91 uh, Rugby World Cup, um, you were on the field when we lost to Australia. Um, what was that like in the change rooms afterwards? How'd you pick yourself up afterwards? Because you've got the entire pressure of a nation on you. You've got the pressure within the team. And look, let's be honest, you came up a, against a really good Australian team and David Campisi, who was just having one of those David Campisi days where he couldn't do anything wrong. Um, what was it like? Yeah. yeah he Campo was on fire. And yeah. and so were a few of them. Nick Farr Jones and Tim Horan were were especially on fire that day. Um you know, they were peaking at the right time. Uh, coming off the field, it was like a morgue. Um, couldn't wait to get off the field. And I couldn't tell you the time because it becomes a blur, but I think nobody said a thing for at least half an hour, maybe longer. 
and everyone was just sitting with their hands, you know, their head in their hands and uh, looking at the ground and nobody was changing, nobody was showering. It was just, it was just a morgue. It was dead. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until Andy Earl stood up and said, come on, guys, we've got to move on. And that was the catalyst for guys to get up and grab a beer and, and jump in the shower and just decide, well, you know, you can't change it. It's gone. We've got to get on with life. And that was that was the catalyst for change. Um, we did have to go out and have a few beers. In fact, Lockie Butler, who's unfortunately dead now, was a liaison officer. He was also our liaison officer in 89 through Ireland. He drew us to a pub on the outskirts of Dublin where there was nobody really around so we could be with ourselves for an hour or two and have a quiet drink. And that was probably... Uh, a really nice thing for him to do and for the team to do just to get away from it and collect our thoughts and, uh, you know, then get back and try and regroup because you've still got another game coming up for that silly third place playoff. Well, that was my next question, actually. Are you a proponent of the third place playoff game? Because there's so many players who just go, we should just bury it there and just leave it, just play the final and jog on. Yeah, what's the point of it? You know, it's um, nobody wants to be there. Unfortunately, you do have to pick yourself up and go out there and try and try and win third place. Um, but mate, it's just one of those games. I, I players don't enjoy it. There's no. no real benefit in saying, "Look, we came third or we came fourth. Being a semi-finalist is is good enough, you know. So, um, yeah. If it was me, I would scrap it. But I'm picking. There's, you know, there's probably a lot of pundits that have travelled the globe to be at a an event and their team might have got dished out when they hope they make the final. So at least they get another game. But uh, as a player, too yeah. hard. No, it's good good revenue for the tournament organisers as well, I guess. Um, how did John Hart keep the lid on that Auckland NPC team? Because you guys, basically, you stay motivated for so, so long. There's 61 shield defences and look, no disrespect to some of the teams you played. But when you look at some of the results... 84-3 against Counties, 62-9 against Hawke's Bay, 72-0 against East Coast. How do you stay motivated for games like that? Because by the time, well, let's be honest, like you said, you guys felt that you could score from anywhere. I think the general public did as well. But when you're 30 or 40 points up, geez, it's hard yakker, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, no, it's, it's not if you're motivated to perform well like you know it's, it's not about the result it's about the performance and you hear all blacks of today talking more about the process and getting what they want to do right so they don't go out and game thinking oh we're going to beat australia by 10 points they just go we've got to go out and make sure we win our lineouts and put the ball out in front and do these moves and things will happen well in the game when that happens it gets exciting and one team start to fatigue and one team's getting more and more excited because the uh, try lines are opening up. Uh, if you went back to John Hart and motivation, like he had three little things that was important to him that he, that he based it on. One of them was timekeeping. One of them was dress standards. And the third thing was um, uh, respecting the rules of the game. So, it's a pretty simple thing. And he actually uh, made a bus leave Eden Park. We're going up to Northland to play them. And Andy Hayden was late. And he, Hardy initially made a mistake because he waited for Hayden. And Hayden still didn't show. And he was stressing about it. And he decided, I have to do what's right by the team. So we got on the bus and we left Hayden behind. When Andy got up to Wangarei, he actually burst into John Hart's door and said, mate, you did the right thing. Hart was worried it was going to turn the other way. But, but, that was showing the team that no one was above the law. 
Yeah. And um, that was the start of, you know, the whole discipline of why Auckland was successful. Then Morris Trapp and BG came along and they're two wonderful guys. And they, they kind of just kept that momentum going with the players, you know, being not dominant, but, but allowed their say and being a big part of selections and how we played the game. Yeah, not wrong. Now, when you look back at the, we look at the players that you played with, and how dominant you were. Do you think there's ever going to be an error, especially like you said with some of the issues with club rugby, like that one again in New Zealand rugby? I mean, you you win 11 of 15 national provincial champs from 1982 to 1996. You've got 61 Ranfurly Shield defences over nine seasons. It's probably never going to happen again, is it? No, not not as we know it. Um, but you'd have to say that the Crusaders have left a pretty good legacy with what what they do now they may not go as many years without losing, but they've created a pretty good dynasty down there already. Yeah. Um, which, which, you know, the blues started off like that at the start of the professional era, but they've fallen off the pace and hopefully they'll come back to it. Um, it's, it's definitely harder now under a professional reign, you know, uh, even one of your best players may not stay at your province. Um, Hoskins Tutu has left Auckland to go to mm. counties. Mm. So in, in a professional environment, it is different. But if you went back to our era, like if you go through the team, how many of them are amongst the all-time greats of All Black Rugby? Or yeah. if they're not in the greatest 15, they're not far off that mark. So, man, how lucky was I to be part of a team like that? If I told you that you were going to be playing rugby with two knights, you would have just laughed at me probably. Absolutely, yeah. Wouldn't have believed it for a second. No, not wrong. Uh, You've said that it was the best environment you've ever played when everybody got on well with one another and that it was um, a freak time to be part of something extraordinary. And you said that John Hart created those rules, like you said. Do you think that that's what the the difference between you and the others was at the end of the day? Oh, yeah. Look, it's it's a big wheel with a lot of cogs on it. Um, But but it all adds up to, to equal uh, success. Um, you know, we still get together before Christmas and have a Christmas drink. And, uh, you know, it only takes one phone call or one email out to hmm. the boys and they're all coming back. You all be there. And, if the, you know, if they can't, they can't. But it's, it's not hard to get us together for a, for a drink or a game of golf. And that just shows the love and support that we all had for each other in those days. Yeah, not wrong. All right, if somebody came up to you today and said, hey, look, my kid's about 12 or 13 years of age, what advice would you give them to make it as either an all black or a super rugby player? What things would you tell them? Or who? Get fit. Yeah, get, get fit. Like I was told once when I was youngish that um, getting fit will make the average player good and the good player great. And one of my strengths was fitness. And I'd like to think, um, you know, you had a skill factor about you as well, but, but you've got to be fit to be able to take the knocks. And you've got to be fit to bounce back from that. And you've got to be fit to last the game. So um, I would encourage them to work hard on their fitness. The other stuff falls into place through coaching and uh, stuff. Uh, you've, got to have, uh, you've got to have a strong mind. And I don't know how you coach that. There probably are ways around that in today's world. But um, that would be the simple advice, I think. Because look, to be fair, when you're at your absolute peak and you're playing for Auckland, you're playing for the All Blacks, um, it's probably unknown to a lot of people that you're also playing Gaelic football on a Sunday um, and you were taking part in the Australasian Games for the Auckland Gaelic football team as well. How many practice sessions were you attending? I know the boys were a bit lenient on some of the Gaelic football practice sessions because we figured you had the skills, but how many sessions do you reckon you did in a week, Bernie? 
Well, as a team, we'd normally do three sessions a week, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. But as an individual, you'd make sure you went out on a Monday or a Wednesday and you you went for a run or did, did a sprint session or, you know, obviously the forwards would do uh, weight-driven sessions more than more than the backs would in, in our day. So I guess you're out there, you know, four or five times a week and you're playing a game and then on a Sunday, if it wasn't Gaelic football, would be gathering at some park to play touch rugby for an hour and a half. Um, it just, when you look back, you think you're kind of on the go all the time. It was pretty good, actually. Yeah, not wrong. So your dad was from Donegal, mum's family's from Galway, and with a name like McCowell, there's no dis- absolutely no disputing where your roots are from. Um, when was the first time that you discovered Gaelic football? We used to go to the... Uh, Auckland Irish games when we were young. Um, you know, we used to go to the fairs and, and all yeah. of those things uh, from real young days. Even I remember, you know, we'd go around to Auntie Lily's place, dad's sister, and they'd be singing Irish songs and doing a bit of an Irish dance along the way. So we had part of that culture as far back as I can remember. You know, when we're five or six or seven and going to some of these uh, fairs or fishes. And you'd be watching Gaelic football um, and, you know, learning a little bit about the rules and how it's played and enjoying it. And then probably when I was about 12, I think they started playing some minor football out at um, Odahu. So it'd be a mixture of kids from five years of age up to 12 years of age. And we used to play on the field uh, just for a bit of fun while the men were between games or whatever. And I think when I was about 14, they finally asked me to come and join the Roscoe Rangers Club, which is now Marist Rangers, mm-hmm. which, you know, I had a couple of cousins playing and John Mulrennan and a few blokes like that uh, that we knew pretty well through through the Irish community. So I've been playing it from a young age and learning the ropes and um, developing skills through that uh, facility. Not wrong. Uh, now, your name and that of a number of All Blacks who used to turn up in what we used to say as an, as an opposing player, uh, the Macaho mob, as, as you used to turn up for the Gaelic footy in the games in Auckland in the mid-80s to 1990s. Um, you and Zinni were obviously regular features at the Gaelic games. Did the rugby union ever frown upon it? Did they ever sort of say, hey, hang on, Bernie, you might need to sort of rein this in and just concentrate on the footy? Or did anybody ever say anything about it? No, the only time I something was ever said, and it might have been um, 80, maybe 86 I think it was, and we were going to Adelaide for the Australasian Games. Um, and I think Auckland was going to do an end-of-year tour to Fiji or something. It was a bit of a holiday or something like that. And I said to Hardy that um, I wouldn't be able to go because I'm going on the Gaelic football trip. And he frowned on that a bit. He he kind of wanted us to go as a development group to get over and, um, you know, keep him with the rugby theme. But nobody stood in your way or stopped you. Like, um, it was your choice at the end of the day. Mm. Um I don't even know if they knew how how uh, physical or hard it could be. Uh, but I would often look back and say it was extremely good for fitness, mm. extremely good for my vision, uh, particularly what's happening in front of me, um, and extremely good for your skill set because I know it's a round ball, but I got very good at kicking off both feet. In fact, um, in Gaelic football, I didn't have a preference. With a rugby no. ball, I preferred the right foot, but... I had no qualms about dropping it onto the left foot and having a crack. So, um, you know, you've got to look at, at it being a bit more all-rounded and, and the benefits you got from it. Speaking of having a crack, I'll, I'll jump a couple of questions ahead. Speaking of having a crack, 
your brother in blue, Zinni, uh, playing England in that uh, Rugby World Cup game. The second he put that ball on his foot and uh, put it over the crossbar, after Robin had actually put up a bomb afterwards, did that come as a surprise to you? Because I know so many Gaelic football boys who when Zinni put that over just went, yep, he's playing bloody Gaelic football there in the middle of a rugby match. Get on you, Zinni. No surprises at all. Um, he joined he joined Marist in 1983 uh, as a young fella from, from Northland uh, who'd come down to do a, an apprenticeship. And his skill set at the time was, was pretty amazing. But nobody even seen the time that he put into practicing those skills. And we'd often, after training, get on the pitch and we'd be having uh, drop kick competitions from 30 and 40 metres out. And it got to the point where when we'd had enough, we'd be ready to leave and you'd be on the sideline of the footy field and the tunnel is about, I don't know, 35 or 40 metres away and you weren't allowed to go in for a shower until you were able to chip the ball into the tunnel on the full. It couldn't bounce in there and all those sort of games. So some guys would play and it could take 10 or 12 kicks so they'd never come back. But people like Zinni and myself and Terry Wright and Shane Howarth, you know, you'd get it in there within the second go, maybe the first go. So when Zinni seen an opportunity, he would take it. And it didn't matter if that's a chip kick over the top or a reverse pass from the sideline to the midfield or a drop kick in a game. Nothing, nothing surprised me in the end. No, you're right. And the number of times you used to watch him play and go, ah, yeah, that's Gaelic football right there. So you not only taught Australia as part of the Auckland GAA team at the Australasian, uh, for the Australasian uh, championships for a number of games, but you are also part of the first ever Auckland winning Australasian GAA championship in 1992 after three periods of extra time. And I think a lot of New Zealanders don't actually realise that some of the guys that we played against, um, Jimmy Steins, um, Tom Sheridan, a couple of the others were actually all professional Aussie rules players, which always makes it interesting. Um, yeah. that, that, that victory in 92 meant a huge amount to the Irish community in New Zealand. Uh, and many who had backed the local competition and the minor teams previously. Was that the highlight of you for your Gaelic football career, do you think? Um, It was certainly one of the great moments. You know, I look back on that particular game with mixed emotions because nobody should lose after three extra times. uh, It was actually starting to get dark. (laughs) And um, even though it was wonderful to win, I, I felt really bad for those New South Welshmen that had given their guts... Uh, you know, what do we play? Is it an hour and then three lots of 15 minutes? Um, yeah. And it was just survival of the fittest at the end. After a tough, well, you know that week of footy, you play yeah. play four or five games. It's a lot of footy in a short time, and it's, it is it is tough. Um, but, you know, at the same time, seeing the euphoria on some of the older fellas, the Jim Gellers and Dads and Sean Reynolds and all those guys that, uh, you know, had been following the game ever since they arrived in this country in the 50s, was pretty special for them. And it was great for us to be able to, uh, I guess, emulate for them. Maybe, so, so that is one. Also winning it in Wellington was a pretty special time. I think that was 97, was it? But I also got picked for an Australasian team in, 96, uh, in 86 in Adelaide yep. that we played against the um, All-Ireland team who were out to play against the Australian rules or you know, AFL team. So... Yep. Some of the greats of the game, Jack O'Shea's and Pat Spillane's and yeah. guys like that were out. And that was, you know, when I look back as a kid, I was 19 or something at the time, I look back on that and go, wow, how how cool was that? 
Yeah, because that was just nine months before the Rugby World Cup, wasn't it? You were marking uh, Tom Spillane in that game. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There you go. And you've even toured Leitrim in, and, nine, in 1989. Thanks to a good mate, Aidan, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a GAA barbarian with a few Kiwis in the team. What was that like touring? Because you had a whole bunch of guys there. There were guys from New York and there was guys from Australia and a whole bunch of other places touring Ireland playing Gaelic football. And do you think if we took a Kiwi team to Ireland to play Gaelic football, I'm not saying the county teams, because let's be honest, that's just one step too far. But you think the New Zealanders would actually get on? Because I've heard from a lot of the boys in Ireland, as well as the Kiwi boys, that our football games are a bit different from theirs. Yeah, their skill set's far better than ours. Um, in fact, I think one year they, they had some competition up in Ireland uh, where the Australasian team went. And watching the game, you could see the Australasians were just so much more physical. They were trying to muscle their way in where the Irish is so much more skillful. They'll be keeping away from all that physicality. Um, so that was a big difference. But getting back to Aidan, like we actually went back to Ireland for Christmas is what we really went back for. Um, me and my brother Paddy and my sister Mary uh, were the three, and my mate Steve Griffin, whose dad was from uh, just out of Irish Town in Mayo, uh, we all went over together. In fact, uh, Griff had been in New York for a while, so we met up with him in New York on our way across. And unbeknownst to us at the time, Aiden kind of jacked up two games of Gaelic football, one in Leitrim and one in London, <laughs> and a game of rugby. And the rugby was played on uh, Boxing Day, and it's an annual fixture between... Uh, Oh, is it Leitrim and one of the neighbours? So uh, that was a bit of fun too. So we're out in the, the snow and the cold playing a game that shouldn't be played at that time of year anyhow. But, um, but we all did it and had a bit of fun. And, um, you know, we met, went and met cousins and relations and all sorts of things on the trip. So it wasn't so much a Gaelic football trip. It's more uh, a homecoming, if that's the right word, to go and meet up with some rallies and see the place and understand it a bit better for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. When you see Bowden Barrett playing football, can you see his Gaelic football skills coming out? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, I kind of I, I touched on it before about the vision. You know, uh, rugby's quite a lateral game. You're always passing, you know, to the side mm. uh, generally. And Gaelic football, a bit more like soccer, is you're looking for people and space in front of you. And so I developed that through Gaelic football and, and my ability to put a wipers kick in or a chip over the top to space came from Gaelic football. And I see Bowden often chipping over the top or kicking to corners. And I'm convinced he got a lot of that skill from his younger days uh, learning Gaelic football. Yeah, not wrong. Especially when he runs towards, he'll run towards the corner flag and then he'll basically spin on a dime and kick it back on the on the sort of blind side there. It's yeah, vintage yeah. Gaelic football. Not wrong. Absolutely, yeah. So three years after you retire, rugby goes pro. Um, any regrets about not being there and not earning truckloads of coin and actually being being a professional rugby player or not? No, nah, not at all. Uh, you know, I don't think they made that much money in the early days anyhow. Um, and you could never take back the mates and the fun that we had. You know, it's professionalism changes things. Um, you've got to behave a different way and, you know, there was no phones around in our day, so you could drink as much as you want. And mm -hmm. Nobody was judging you, and you could uh, one of your mates would end up getting you home, or you'd do vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, lifelong friends versus a you know bit of money in the bank. Uh, I don't know. 
yeah. you know what? You, you played the game because you loved it. And I'm sure you can still do that today, but it has become a job. And whether it becomes a chore at times, probably. Uh, you know, th these guys are training 11 months of the year or whatever they are. Yeah. Man, I used to look forward to the end of the season so I could go and play football and get away from rugby. Yeah. And, of course, by the time January came around, you couldn't wait for rugby to, to start up again. But but you're also glad to get away. So um, I think there's a whole balance in it. And professionalism has changed that. And um, I only hope that they get as much fun and enjoyment out of it. And they develop some good lifelong friends, which I think they do. But it is just different. Yeah, you're right. Um, and there's also that thing of, uh, how do I put this? when you were playing and Zinni were playing and even there was a real good chance that you could go somewhere in Auckland and see an all black actually working in a job or doing something else. Like I used to very often pop in and see um, Walker Nathan and his butchery and that type of stuff. And yeah, that type of stuff where now that seems to have gone because there seems not, I'm not going to say elitism, but there seems to be this thing of what you say, they're always training. They're always playing. And if they're not, they're busy doing something yeah. else. So yeah, maybe yeah, a bit it's of like a they're on their own little bubble, isn't it? They're not, yeah. they're not out, um, you know, Fitzy was a builder in the early days and Zinni's a, 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 a gas fitter and plumber. Yeah. So they're on everyday people's sites doing a job. So, um, yeah, that's certainly gone from the place. Yeah, not wrong. Um, out of all of your career, was there anything that you missed out on that you maybe would have liked to have done? So maybe a, a British and Irish Lions tour or um, South Africa or something else like that? Was something that you you missed that you sort of think, yeah, if I had a, had a chance again, I'd, I'd maybe have a crack at it? Yeah, I, I was a bit disappointed that I didn't get to play in a World Cup final, really. You know, um, that would have been nice to actually be part of it. Like, I shouldn't say be part of it. That's not right, because you are yeah. a big part of getting the team to the final. Uh, and you do your bit on the way through. But actually taking the field in the final, I would have really enjoyed, I think, more than anything else. Um, I didn't worry so much about South Africa in those days because they weren't part of the mix, although... You know, through that South Pacific competition, which then became the Super 10, we got to go there uh, in my last year of, of 93. And then you started to realise that it would have been a great place to go and tour and play a bit of footy um, mm. with them being as passionate as us. So, uh, yeah, not at the time, but certainly afterwards you look back and think that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, not wrong. Now, when you look at the 1987 Rugby World Cup team, and I know that uh, Dr. Jeremy Stanley even did a, a bit of a thesis on it, there were lots of you who have got, like, Fairly bad injuries. Um, I think obviously Foxy's had a couple of replacements and a few other bits and pieces. Uh, Sir Michael Jones has got a dodgy knee. I remember him being in an elevator and showing me how far he could flex it and going, I was like, holy, uh, how's your body <laughs> holding up? They look pretty good. Um, when you look back on, on being a midfield back in my day, um, you know, we might have made two tackles a game if we're lucky. You know, yeah. you, you weren't. You weren't a crash bash. Well, I certainly wasn't a crash bash sort of player. Joe Stanley was a different sort of midfielder yeah. to me. Yeah. But, um, you know, it wasn't as physical. If you got into a ruck, you're at the bottom of the ruck and, and AJ Witten or Michael Jones were lying on top of you protecting you. So it happened very rarely that you got belted round. Yeah. Um, certainly some guys have worn out a hip or a knee, but, but uh, I've been really lucky in that regard. I've got a bit of a sore right knee. But that's come from Gaelic football, where a guy tried to he tried to cut me down with a with a leg trip. Um, he came off second best because he broke his leg at the time. But but you know the, just the outside of the knee, I can feel it at times if I walk a bit too much or get up a hill too much. But um, 
know, my shoulders are good. My my body in general is good. I still play golf um, often, and I you know walk probably close to ten k's most days. And um, yeah, no issues with me. Oh, that's all good. That's a good thing. All right, I'm going to ask you the last question. It's always a bit of a weird one uh, if you've ever if you haven't been a guest before. So your day of reckoning's come. You're lying in your casket, but strangely enough, you can hear what other people are saying about you. So it's what we call the eulogy question. So I'm going to ask you this. What would you like people to say about Bernard J. McCahill on your day of reckoning? Uh, He was a good bastard. (laughs) Can't argue with that. I've got to vouch for that. You are, Bernie. So God bless. Hey, um, thank you very much for your time today, Bernie. It's been absolutely really interesting to get those insights into the the 87 Rugby World Cup team. I know that there's, I've told people that you're going to be a guest on the podcast today. There's been heaps of interest from overseas. Uh, lots of people wanting to say hi as well. So, you know, all the all the uh, rogues gallery that are all wanting to say hi. So I'll say a big hi from them. Um, appreciate, you, appreciate your time. Thanks very much, bud. Good on you, Brian, mate. It's, uh, thanks for the invite. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Cappuccino podcast. Real people, real stories.